Today's scripture comes from Ruth chapter 4. Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, he said to him, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here. They did so. Then Boaz said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth, the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. But this, the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because uh, I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times, in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all those at the gate, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Malon, and Kilion. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. The elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make this woman coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, 
Boaz the father of Obed. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David. Thank you, Jeff, for that uh, recitation of Ruth chapter 4. <laughs> and uh, welcome to all of you. And I, I hope and I pray that these few weeks that we've been in uh, the book of Ruth has been a blessing to you. <clears throat> I am uh, excited, but also a little sad to be coming to the close of, of the book of Ruth. But I pray that you have seen God's unceasing kindness uh, in this book. Well, last week, in Ruth chapter 3, we saw Naomi, an aging widow, recently renewed by her belief in the sovereignty and the goodness of God. We see her suddenly break out of her self-absorption and become interested in the needs of her widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. That's what we saw last week. And at the top of Naomi's concern for Ruth is Ruth's need for a husband, which is just another way of saying Ruth's need for rest. Ruth needs rest, and now Naomi recognizes that and wants to see Ruth come to rest. Well, several weeks have gone by since Ruth has been working in Boaz's field, and what started off as a promising meeting between Ruth and Boaz hasn't gone anywhere. There hasn't been any progress in their relationship. Boaz isn't making any moves. And so Naomi comes up with a plan, an idea to try to get Boaz to marry Ruth. She sees Boaz as the answer to Ruth's need for rest, for Ruth's need for a husband. But the plan that she comes up with is a risky plan. It involves Ruth going to Boaz in the middle of the night when he's off by himself, away from all the other men on the threshing floor, and asking for him to marry her, an act that it could easily result in misunderstanding or misinterpretation by Boaz if Ruth isn't careful. But as a kinsman redeemer, as one of those that God has charged with the responsibility of caring for the neediest members of the family, a marriage to Boaz would mean lifelong security and provision and protection for both Ruth and Naomi. And so this risky plan for Ruth is well worth the risk. Well, thankfully, as we find out in Ruth chapter 3, Boaz accepts Ruth's proposal for marriage, and he tells her that her situation is going to get resolved. He's going to see to it. He's going to make sure that she gets the rest that she's been longing for in life. But as with any good love story, there's a complication. There's always someone or something that gets in the way. Boaz, in his integrity, he tells Ruth that there's actually another kinsman redeemer that she doesn't know about. There's another guy in the picture that she needs to know about. One who's actually more closely related to Naomi than Boaz is. And because this other guy is more closely related, he gets first dibs at redeeming the family, and in this case, marrying Ruth. And so that's where we left things off in chapter 3. And so as we come to Ruth chapter 4 this morning, act 4, the final act of the story, we're going to see how the author of Ruth wraps up Naomi and Ruth's stories and how he brings resolution 
to their, to their situations. And what we're going to see is that he's going to do this in such a way that he's going to reveal something very important to us about God. He's going to show us something about God, something that he's been wanting us to see throughout the entirety of the story. And what he wants us to see is that God is a God who brings life and fullness out of death and emptiness. That's the very thing that the author of Ruth has been wanting us to see throughout this entire story. That in the life of God's people, no matter how hopeless or dark or tragic their situation may be, God is a God who loves to bring life and fullness out of death and emptiness. And that's what we're going to see here at the close of the book of Ruth. And in chapter 4, in Acts 4, we're going to see this characteristic of God on three separate levels. We're going to see it on the first level, the level of Ruth and Naomi's story. And then we're going to see that characteristic on a second level, the level of Israel's story. And then we're going to see it on a higher level, the third level of our own personal stories. In each level, we're going to see that God is a God who brings life and fullness out of death and emptiness. We'll look with me at that first level, the level of Ruth and Naomi's story, where we see Boaz having just left Ruth on the threshing floor from the night before. He's now heading into town to resolve Ruth's situation. Look with me at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, and by the way, the town gate would have been the place where all official and legal matters would have been conducted during this time. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat there. When the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother, or our relative, Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so that I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. This is really a no-brainer kind of deal for this kinsman redeemer. This, this transaction, this deal, as presented to him by Boaz, makes total financial sense for this kinsman redeemer. It's a real estate deal that he cannot pass up. It is too good to pass up. Boaz comes to him and tells him that Naomi has a piece of land that she's looking to sell. And this land would have belonged to her deceased husband, Elimelech, and she wants to sell it in order to live off of the profits to support her in her old age. Now, technically, what Naomi is selling is the right to, to use the land, not necessarily the right to own the land. During this time, land did not cross-ownership. You could not own someone else's land in that sense. At this time in God's, in this time of Israel's history, land stayed within the family. So what she's selling is the legal use of the land for a designated period of time, at which point the land would then revert back to Naomi, assuming Naomi is still alive. 
And Naomi wants to sell this piece of land to this kinsman redeemer in order to keep the property within the family clan of Elimelech, which was a value that was very important to God and to his people. But this kinsman redeemer, he's a shrewd and savvy businessman. He sees an opportunity here to increase his assets. He sees an opportunity that he can capitalize on to increase his net worth. He recognizes that since there's no children in Elimelech's family and therefore no heirs to eventually inherit this land, this land will eventually become his own since he's the nearest relative to Naomi. He recognizes as long as there is no child in the family, as long as Naomi and Ruth remain childless, this land will eventually go to him as the closest relative. And so for him to put up an initial investment to use the land makes total sense because eventually the land will revert to him. But this kinsman redeemer, he's not the only one who knows how to work a deal. He's not the only one who's savvy. Look at what Boaz does in verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the kinsman redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the kinsman redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. In a shrewd and savvy move of his own, Boaz saves the most important part of this transaction for last. He says, look, no name, kinsman redeemer. This guy, by the way, has no name. C come here. Naomi's got this piece of land, and when you buy the land, you're also agreeing to marry Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of M Malon and the daughter-in-law of Elimelech. And by marrying Ruth, you're agreeing to have a child with her so that this child will one day inherit the land as a descendant of Elimelech, and so that this land will remain within the family of Elimelech. Well, once again, this nameless kinsman redeemer does some quick math in his mind, and he realizes this is a deal that's gone sour on him. This is no longer working in his advantage. This is an investment nightmare. He realizes that if he were to buy the land and then produce a child with Ruth, that the land would never actually become part of his own inheritance. It would belong to the child that he has with Ruth. And so the initial investment that he put forward to buy the land would be lost. The land will eventually go to Ruth's child. And so he says in verse 6, I can't do it. I can't do it. It'll endanger my own estate. As long as the purchase of the land seemed to benefit him, this no-name kinsman redeemer liked the idea of being a kinsman redeemer. He liked the idea of, of buying this land from Naomi. But as soon as it looked like he was going to get nothing out of the deal, suddenly he wasn't so keen on being a kinsman redeemer. Suddenly the cost was too high for him to pay. Thankfully, in this story, there's another kinsman redeemer for whom the cost is not too high. 
for whom there's a willingness to pay what is required to do what is right. Look at verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all those at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who was coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, which is the clan of Elimelech, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. You see, unlike this nameless kinsman redeemer, Boaz is willing to pay the price for the good of the family of Elimelech and for the good of Ruth the Moabitess. In his willingness to function as the ideal kinsman redeemer, Boaz has just brought about a major reversal in this story. Before our eyes, we have just seen a major reversal. We have just seen a dead man who has no children, now all of a sudden has an heir to inherit his land. And we see a foreign widow with no rest in the world. Now all of a sudden she has a husband and a home where she can now find rest. Boaz has just brought about a major reversal in Ruth's story. One of my favorite things to do with my family is to go on road trips. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something about packing up all four kids in the minivan, packing up all our stuff and just hitting the road, just going out for the adventure. I just love going on road trips with my family. Well, last year we took a road trip to Tennessee. And as we were heading into southern Kentucky, we decided to pull over and to consider going a back road. We decided to take some scenic roads to get to where our destination was in Tennessee. So we found a route that would take us what we thought was gonna go through some really pretty country roads. And for the first several minutes of the trip, it was exactly what we were looking for. It was beautiful country, rolling hills, lots of farmland, animals. It was exactly what we were looking for on this trip. But after about 25 minutes into the drive, the route that we were on suddenly changed. We went from experiencing straight, high-speed country roads with beautiful scenery to all of a sudden experiencing curvy, windy, extremely slow country roads. The next hour or so of our drive was nothing but hills, curves, sudden turns, narrow roads, limited vision, and eventually we hit a detour by a truck that had somehow bottomed out on the road. All the while, going no faster than 35 miles per hour, and on top of all of that, I had a car full of four sick kids and a sick wife who was ready for this journey to come to a close. What started off for us as a promising, relaxing road trip through the country roads of southern Kentucky turned into a disaster that we did not see coming, but that we could not wait for it to end. And in many ways, that's a lot like how life is. Very rarely is life like a smooth, steady, uneventful, straight highway like going through Nebraska, 
More often, it's like a turbulent country road in southern Kentucky with curves, hills, detours, and a bunch of sick family members in the car. At least, that's how it was for Ruth. Ruth's life was filled with detours and setbacks and ups and downs and unexpected turns along the way. Little did she know when she married Milan at at a young age that a few short years later she'd be widowed and left destitute with no children in her life. She had no idea that that's the journey she was setting out on. But what Ruth's story also teaches us about life is that God was working behind the scenes of her life the entire time to reverse her situation. As we trace Ruth's story from chapter 1 to chapter 4, we see her go from a place of death and emptiness in chapter 1. We see her go from a place of no husband, no children, and no rest in the world to all of a sudden here in chapter 4, we see her in a place of life and fullness. We see her in a place with a loving husband, a future child, and now rest in the home of a husband the rest that she had been looking for her entire life. And I imagine there are some of us this morning who need to hear that. Some of us who need to hear that no matter how many detours or setbacks or ups and downs that we've gone through in life, that God is still at work in our lives. That God is a God who loves to bring life and fullness out of death and emptiness. That he promises to reverse our situations, whether in this life or in the life to come. The new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, God will reverse all of our death and emptiness. Because that's who God is. That's what he does. He is a God who brings life and fullness out of death and emptiness. And we've seen this in Ruth's life. He's completely reversed her situation because that's who God is. God is a God who brings life and fullness out of our death and emptiness. And now with Ruth's story here in chapter 4, wrapped up and having come to a conclusion, come to a resolution, the author of Ruth is now going to focus in on Naomi. And he's going to bring resolution to Naomi's story. Look at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. My father-in-law loves to say that being a grandparent is one of the greatest gigs in the world. He loves it. He says it's a lot like parenting, except without any of the rules. He says he gets to spoil the kids fill them up with sugar, and then send them home for the parents to deal with. And I'm sure some of you who are grandparents recognize that grandparenting is a pretty good gig. Well, in verses 13 through 17, what we see is a picture of a grandmother who is absolutely smitten by her grandson. She's loving the grandparenting life. 
Because Naomi recognizes in, Boaz, in Obed, everything tragic in her life has been reversed. Everything tragic in her life has found its answer in this little Obed, her grandson. Even the women of the town recognize that this has come true for Naomi. They say in verse 14, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age, the very thing she was afraid of in chapter 1. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. In Obed, Naomi has experienced the reversal in her life. Through God's provision of this newborn grandson, Naomi's hopeless future of chapter 1 has been completely transformed into a hope-filled future here in chapter 4. And all because God had not abandoned her. God had not left her like she thought. In chapter 1, she was convinced that the tragedy and the suffering in her life was a sign that God's hand had gone out against her, that he had abandoned her. But here in chapter 4, we see that's not true. God never abandoned her. He was working behind the scenes the entire time to reverse her situation. When I was a kid, I had a principal by the name of Mr. Edwards. Mr. Edwards. Some of you, in fact, might know Mr. Edwards. I was not a fan of Mr. Edwards when I was a kid. I had a very negative view of him. I spent many recesses, many lunches, and many after-school detentions in his office for misbehavior. In my mind, as a kid, I was convinced that he was out to get me, that he was someone who enjoyed giving me detentions. That was my very poor view of Mr. Edwards when I was a kid. Well, fast forward many years later to the year 2018, when I was asked to preach a sermon at Grace Missionary Church here in Zion, just down the road. At the beginning of the service, I noticed a man who looked oddly familiar to me. He walked up to the platform, he grabbed his guitar, and he started playing with the worship team. And suddenly, within just a few moments, I recognized that was my old principal, Mr. Edwards, the man I used to fear and loathe. I had no idea that he was a solid believer in Jesus Christ, and that he was a longtime member of Grace Missionary Church. I had no idea. Eventually, I came to know that about him, but I did not know that up to that point. And suddenly, my childhood view and fear of Mr. Edwards was forced to change. Suddenly, I was presented with a different picture of who he actually was. Far from being a mean old principal who was just out to get me, he was actually a kind and godly man who wanted to see the young Drew Wickland grow up and become mature in life. That's who he was. But I didn't know that at the time. By focusing in on Naomi, here in verses 13 through 17, what the author of Ruth wants us to see is that what Naomi thought about God in chapter 1 was completely wrong. She was wrong about God. God had not abandoned her. The suffering in her life was not a sign that God's hand had gone out against her. Instead, the opposite was true. He was at work behind the scenes of her life, taking her from a place of death and emptiness to a place of life and fullness. That's Naomi's story. And that's what the author of Ruth wants us to see. 
What about you this morning? I wonder if you can relate to Naomi. I wonder if tragedy or hardship or setbacks in your life has made you feel like God's hand has gone out against you. That he's abandoned you. That he's no longer working in your life for good. That he's aloof to your suffering. If that's you this morning, will you allow me to gently remind you that Naomi once thought the same thing. She thought that the suffering in her life was a sign that God was against her, that God was aloof to her suffering, that he didn't care anymore about Naomi. But what she came to discover is that no matter how tragic or empty life may seem, God is a God who is committed to bringing life and fullness out of our death and emptiness. And he will do it in this life or in the life to come. Well, that's the first level, the level of Naomi and Ruth's stories where we see God bringing life and fullness out of death and emptiness. But there's a second level in the story where we see this characteristic of God at play, and it's at the level of Israel's story. Look again at verse 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Many of us are familiar with that 1997 film, Men in Black, starring Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones as secret government agents who are responsible for regulating and for governing the intergalactic alien population on Earth. Well, the final scene of the movie ends with the camera panning out beyond Earth where all the the movie's events and storyline took place, panning out beyond Earth, beyond the solar system, beyond the galaxy, and eventually beyond the known universe, at which point we discover that the known universe is nothing more than a single round marble in the hand of a giant alien engaged in a game of marbles. That's the big story that was going on. And by ending the movie this way, the creators of Men in Black are inviting us to see that the movie, the story that we've just been engaged in for the past two hours, was part of a grander story that was going on the entire time. A story that the characters in the movie had no idea that they were a part of. And verse 17, as well as the genealogy that follows, is the author's way of showing us that there was a grander story going on in Ruth and Naomi's stories. The author of Ruth is kind of panning out to show us that the story we've been engaged in for the past few weeks was part of a much bigger story that God was writing for the people of Israel. A story that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz had no idea they were a part of. A story that would eventually lead to the greatest king that Israel knew, King David. And with King David came the hope of the Messiah, which brings us to the third level of this story, our stories, where we see God bringing life and fullness out of death and emptiness. The book of Ruth ends with verse 22 in this genealogy. It says, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. The next time we see this exact genealogy, verses 18 through 22, The next time we see that genealogy isn't until Matthew chapter 1 when we get the genealogy of Jesus. 
By ending his book this way, the author of Ruth is pointing us forward to the hope of the ultimate Davidic king, the Messiah, Israel's hope, the world's hope, this Messiah who would one day redeem not only Israel, but the entire world, which is where our stories fit into Ruth's story. And the author of Ruth does not want us to miss this. He wants us to recognize that Obed points forward to David, that David points forward to the hope of the Messiah. And eventually we learn in Matthew chapter 1 that the hope of the Messiah is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the one through whom God's ultimate act of bringing life and fullness out of death and emptiness would one day be accomplished. That's the book of Ruth. It's not just a story of two widows in Bethlehem many millennia ago. It's not just a story of Israel. It's, it's our story of how God brought about the Messiah, the hope of the world. The Mariana Trench is an oceanic trench located in the Pacific Ocean near Guam. It's the deepest spot on the face of the earth. In 1875, scientists determined that the deepest spot in the trench was a depth of 26,850 feet deep. But that actually wasn't the deepest spot in the trench. In 1951, scientists found a spot that was even deeper, at a depth of 35,760 feet. But that still wasn't the deepest spot in the trench. In 2009, scientists found a spot that was just shy of 36,000 feet. Scientists now refer to this spot as the maximum known depth of the Mariana Trench. In other words, it's possible that there are spots in the trench that go even deeper than what's currently known. And to help put that into perspective for us, if you were to take Mount Everest, which stands at about 29,000 feet, and completely submerge it into the Mariana Trench, you'd still have 1.2 miles of ocean water from the top of the mountain to the surface level of the ocean. That's how deep the Mariana Trench goes. It seems like no matter how far down scientists seem to go, they never seem to be able to hit the bottom of the, Oceana, the, the, the Mariana Trench. There seems to always be more to go. Well, what the book of Ruth has been showing us these past several weeks is that God's kindness, God's chesed, God's generosity is a lot like the Mariana Trench. There seems to be no end to his kindness. No matter how far down the tragedy in Naomi and Ruth's lives seemed to take them, God's kindness went deeper still. They never hit the bottom on God's kindness. There was always more to go. And the same goes for us this morning. No matter the depth of our brokenness, no matter how far down tragedy seems to take us, the book of Ruth is a reminder that God's kindness goes deeper still. We will never hit the bottom on God's kindness. We will never exhaust it. Because as Ruth's story has been showing us, God's kindness is unceasing kindness. There's always more to go. Well, as we head into communion, let's pause for a moment and let's pray to this God of unceasing kindness. Father, we thank you for your great compassion and generosity, mercy, love, 
toward us, your people, unworthy though we are. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for the work that you did in Naomi and Ruth's lives, leading to King David, eventually leading to Jesus Christ and to our redemption. We thank you for this kindness. And Lord, I pray that we would not lose sight of your good mercy and generosity toward us, even when life seems to bring us deep, deep down into the depths of despair, may we be reminded that your kindness, your compassion, your mercy go deeper still. May this be our our hope and our confidence in life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.